Hello everyone and welcome to our second podcast on the cinema of Pedro Almodovar. We're thinking aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. We are now only at the second one and by this of course I mean feature films. He did do uh, a lot of shorts uh, previously. Uh, I have seen Labyrinth of Passion many many times. Uh, so I want to begin with you, uh, Richard. What's What's your overall view? What mm. stood out for you? I don't think I'd seen it before. As I said last week, I'm very familiar with his later work, but some of this earlier stuff is new to me. This one still clearly an early film, and it's still kind of in the vein of John Waters and that kind of thing. But it feels a lot closer to what he was doing later on. I, th- I think you you know you could see some seeds of the later work in the first film, but this one actually feels like an Armada of our film in a way that the first one didn't. I, I would say. Can you tell us the plot a little bit, if you can manage it, kind of an absurd plot? <laughs> it's kind of an absurd plot, and I, I was looking at reviews of it, and he, um, you know, Almodovar claims there are there are 50 characters, which there may well be, um, but, you know, the core of the plot is there's um, a young man who is the son of the Shagran. deposed emperor of somewhere or other, some fictitious Middle Eastern country. People are looking for him, but he's hiding out in Madrid, and, and he's gay. There's a woman a young woman who's a nymphomaniac whose father is the leading artificial (laughs) inseminator in the world, Um, which would have been quite topical at the time, actually, because this was 82, wasn't it? The the first test tube baby was in the UK and was only 1978. So it it was, you know, a, 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 a new thing. There's a group of terrorists who want to kidnap the, the young man. One of those is, is Antonio Banderas, who, Who's, who has sex with the young man without realising he's the one they're looking for. Um, there's the wife of the emperor who has visited the artificial insemination doctor and wants to get pregnant by the by the son. There's a dry cleaner who's having sex with his daughter. I mean, there's all all this stuff is going on, but and it's quite hard to describe. But it, but they all the, he manages to make this plot kind of make sense because all of these all of these characters kind of collide and interact in interesting ways and and it's you don't i mean i I was i mean i I had problems following it particularly when one of them has plastic surgery to look like another one but but you know you can it it makes sense and at the end it does all kind of click together in quite a clever way i think i think it's very tightly plotted actually Mm. and it's one of the reasons why the absurdness of the story kind of makes sense because everything actually does fit in together if, if you think about it and everything yeah, yeah. has its its kind of parallelisms, really. So, you know, the daughter who is sleeping with the father because he's gone mad and can't distinguish between her and her mother then ends up sleeping with the the father of the girl she now looks like. Yeah, she has yeah. plastic surgery to look like. So all the pieces do fit in together. It's really audacious, right? Like the opening sequence which takes place in the Rastro, which is the flea market in Madrid, right? And, you know, it's this woman eyeing up men's crotches, right? To see who <laughs> she's going to pick up. And mm. there's parallel cutting to this man doing the same, right? Yes. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, if you think about 1982, showing this in a cinema, it's it's incredible, right? Because they're, ext- yeah, I mean, it's not just they're eyeing them up, you know, the camera is doing that too, and we just yes. get extreme close-ups of the of these bulging <laughs> tight jeans it's because it's 1982 everyone's wearing very tight jeans yes. um and yeah <laughs> and it's so playful so i think you know what you were saying about 
you know, we begin to recognize Almodovar stylistically, yeah, because I think Pepe is very much an Almodovar film conceptually and verbally and in so many other ways that you can still recognize. Um, but, but it's true that visually you begin to see it here because in that opening sequence, you see, for example, the image of uh, Cecilia Roth mirrored in these sunglasses that are being sold in a stall in the rastro. You know, and actually that's just, it's, and, and the shot works almost as a kind of a camp punctuation mark, right? Mm, it's mm. meant to be funny, it is funny, it works as funny, and yet, you know, it's a great shot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, absolutely, that was, that was really striking, and that's very sort of, it's very early in the film, you suddenly get this amazing shot, and it, it's, you know, you, yeah, you said, un, unlike... Pepe Lucy Bomb, where, as, as you were saying, it's sort of, you know, heads cut off and, and just point the camera wherever. Here, you really do get a sense of style and, and um, the, the, the shots have really been thought about. Yeah. Mm. Um, when this film is talked about, it's often talked about as a document of the Movida Madrileña, uh, as kind of a document of Madrid in that period. Um, and actually, I would, I, you know, I just want to note that it is that all these famous people appear, you know, that the decor is done, you know, uh, uh, by these people and the paintings or by Costas and the, the, the same things really that we discussed in Pepe. So I don't want to retread that ground again, uh, uh, but just to note that it is there and that this film is arguably seen as the document of all of those bands and photographers and you know, costume designers and so on. Um, I don't think it, it, it means anything particularly to an Anglo-American audience, yeah, except to note that there is that. Uh, so I would like to focus this discussion more on, you know, on what is there, right? Because I think watching it again, it's of great interest for the way that it relates to the rest of Almodovar's films. It's laugh out loud funny, in so many sections, it's not quite good, right? Like, I mean, so there are scenes that I, I never get tired of watching, but I'd be quite happily to watch them as clips. Yeah, mm, mm. I don't know, what did you think? As you, as you say, you, there's so much there that, that prefigures what he, what he'd do later on. And the, the, the bit that really struck me was the, the childhood flashback on the beach. Yeah. There's a scene near the start where it's revealed that the artificial insemination doctor had years ago met the emperor while they're on holiday in somewhere or other. Um, and that, that almost feels like a throwaway joke. Um, but then towards the end of the film, you then see the other side of that, which is that the, without either of them remembering it, the daughter, the, the nymphomaniac daughter and the gay son uh, actually met each other that day too. And um, and the the emperor's second wife is there as well, and it, you know all this stuff goes on in, ter in terms of the adults trying to exploit the children, and then the the you know the girl has this this experience. I mean, nothing sounds nothing, nothing is shown, but you know it, you 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 realise this is the experience that has led her to become an nymphomaniac, and it's really interesting when you compare it to things like Bad Education and, and quite a few of the later films that have these these kind of childhood events that. Traumatized, traumatize. kind of, yeah, traumatized, and the style of the way that's filmed is feels very different to the rest of the film. It's kind of this, again, it feels very similar to the way he films that sort of thing in, in Bad Education. Mm. Um, so I found that fascinating for that second film. Yeah. I think that section relates also very much to High Heels, 
But yeah. there's almost an identical scene, right, in a beach where a young girl trying to get her mother's attention, yeah, is then traumatized by her stepfather. Yeah, but, you know, so this formative, disruptive moment of a young girl in a beach, yeah, um, that then becomes a kind of imitation of life story. Yeah, so it, it, it leads into something yeah. else. But that's repeated. And I want to, I just want to highlight that because, you know, one of the things about Almodovar, which uh, is not necessarily true of other great filmmakers, right? Because I see him as a bit like Trollope, you know, <laughs> yeah, that kind of in, in, in Trollope's novels, you'll have like secondary characters that then become kind of main characters in another film. Yeah. Amadora is not quite like that, except some little theme that appears in one film then becomes, you know, the, the main story of another film. And you even by his second film, you begin to make connections. Obviously, it's only his second film, so you can't connect it to the past. But, you know, retrospectively, having seen the rest of his life, you begin to see how many things appear here. So, for example, the ending sequence, that run to the airport, right, which is a very, I think, Richard Lester-inspired yeah, moment, yeah. You know, uh, it's it's Id almost identical to the rush to the airport that you see in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, mm, right? Mm. Set piece moments even that repeat, yeah? Story elements that repeat, like the connection between this and high heels. Uh, and then, of course, there is the reappearing cast. Cecilia Roth, who also, also appeared in his first film, is here. And again, she would go on to play you know, the lead in All About My Mother. Cristina Pascual, who was the uh, bearded woman cat on a hot tin roof, is here. Uh, it's Antonio Banderas' first film. Imanol Arias, who plays the son of the Shah of Iran, uh, would play Marisa Paredes' colonel husband in The Flower of My Secret. Uh, and it's important because he was a real heartthrob, Imanol Arias, in 80s cinema. Yeah, he played this priest in uh, Camila, this Argentinian film. Yeah, and it's actually one of those melodramas where Camila falls in love with him, right? It's all about like, these, you know, passions through mm. the confessional. Uh, and what you you might not have noticed is that it's Almodovar's brother who plays one of the Arab terrorists, right? Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. this will become a Hitchcock thing throughout the work. Yeah, that except it's his brother who appears rather than him, you know. So he was the young man in the cinema who made the, you know, a Kiki Mamba slap him saying, what do you think, I'm a whore? <laughs> like, I'm an actress and a singer, not a yeah. whore. <laughs> and here, he is one of the roommates of Antonio Banderas who are planning, yeah, the kidnap of, of Ritza. So I think, you know, those are things that maybe, if we haven't already bored our listeners mm. with maybe all these <laughs> names you know, yeah. and films that they don't yet know of, yeah, I would signal you to pay attention to those things because they're recurring and they become kind of almost architectural, yeah? Yeah, that, yeah. You know, because if you decide that these are things that will, you need to plot into the next film, yeah, you kind of have to build around them. And, and, and so that takes on interesting kind of forms yeah, yeah. and shapes as well. What did you think of the Fabio McNamara, Fanny McNamara uh, elements, because I think they're the best in the film, is what I like most. He's the guy who, at the very beginning of the film with Alaska, 
they're outside drinking and she goes oh the, the kind of young punk guy yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah that was great yeah sniffing the nail polish and, yeah. <laughs> i thought you know every time he had beers he yeah, laughed, yeah right um and he's also in the se- the drilling scene with pedro Almodovar directing yeah yes yeah i mean yeah. So did you find it funny? Do you think it's too much? Do you think it's out of place? I mean, how do you think it works in the film? I thought it, it worked for me. I thought it was very funny. I mean, it, 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 and, and, you know, the fact is recognisably Almodovar direct, well, kind of directing, but it's having sort of like a photo novel rather than a film he's directing, isn't it? But, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's this sort of, um, you know, this idea of doing this 80s porno photo novel with a drill is <laughs> I mean it's Suck so it. it's so it. ridiculous <laughs> there's that scene where they're saying uh, Patti Diffusa international porn star yeah and so on right uh, and then it cuts to Fanny McNamara so Fanny McNamara is Patti Diffusa who is writing Patti Diffusa Almodovar right you know kind of what is he writing for kind of magazines that do these photo shoots yeah but you know, like comic books, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, and then who does uh, Fanny appear to sing with? Amadovar, right? So, yeah. So, kind of, you see part of the extra textual thing operating in the film because, you know, Amadovar was writing for comic books and you know these magazines and even newspapers, right? And he wrote like a series of short stories on Patti Diffusa. You know, he was also recording songs, yeah, with kind of, you know, all these people and performing them. So, you know, it's almost like he's a figure in Madrid at this point, right? Um, and, you know, he is a, a, a figure with, yeah, Fanny. <laughs> so I think it's important to underline that, you know, the film of Pepe was such a success that this film was entirely financed by the Alphaville Cinema, yeah? Which was what played, uh, 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 yeah, 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 and and this also became like a very big success. So, and, and this feels much higher budget than, just in terms of the locations and the set design and so on. It it, it does feel more expensive than, than the first film. It was. I mean, I have a, a figure I think, which was that um, you know Pepe, uh, with uh, a blow up. So I, my understanding was that it had cost uh, three million. But uh, I have a statistic here from uh, one of the books that says with the transfer from 16 millimeter to 35 millimeter, it ended up costing uh, six million pesetas, uh, which you know was, is about sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, and that's including all the technical stuff. Uh, and it ended up making four hundred, uh, sorry, forty-three million. Yeah, after after three years of exhibition only, right? Which, you know, for a film that mainly played in repertory and so on was a, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. My understanding is that um, uh, this cost 20 million, which would have been about $200,000, still yeah. a micro budget by Hollywood standards. Uh, and it ended up uh, uh, in its first year, I think, uh, with a box office of 80. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, this is a pattern, like, each of his films would be more and more and more successful until Women and the Virgin of a Nervous Breakdown, which was, it was hard to get more successful than that, because I think that became the most successful film in Spanish film history. Right, in terms of, right. Of box office. 
yeah, this is the way the, the local plays out in this film. Yeah, that kind of the cinema is founding it. All the local bands are involved with it. All the local artists are involved in that. And Almodovar himself is involved in the cinema with the local artists writing for these magazines. Yeah. Um, so, so there's kind of like an interlinking uh, of all of that uh, going on in the film. Yeah, yeah. And as with uh, Pepe Lucy Bomb, it didn't get an international release until later. So yes. um, I had a look this morning. It seems to UK release was 92. Right. So the same so year that Pepe Lucy Pepe. Bomb came out. Uh -huh. Yeah. In the US, it came out in 1990. So two years before Pepe Lucy Bomb. I found a review by Janet Maslin, who of course hated Pepe Lucy Bomb. She was much more positive about uh -huh. this one. Uh -huh. uh, so the, this one... She could, yeah. She was identifying it as, you know, you you can, you can definitely see it's it's a flawed film, but you can definitely see the, the 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 seeds of his career in 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 this film. I think the the only bit she really objected to was the um, the diarrhea bit, <laughs> <laughs> which I can see. Yeah, that was a, that was a little bit a uh, little bit much. The thing is that I think so. Whereas these films in Spain were part of like a, a dissident, disaffected youth culture in general, yeah? Um, you know, its attitudes to drugs and to porn and they're like are really frivolous and fun and like anti-authoritarian and just, you know, that was very much in keeping with the feel of a country that's just come into democracy. But in the U.S., I think these films were really primarily received within gay cultures who understood the films much better, you know, yeah. uh, because they had access to all of the references in a way that maybe Janet Maslin didn't. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I wonder whether they actually circulated earlier in around in that I culture. I think so. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. 1992 would have been, you know, mainstream distribution yes well uh, ma art ha mainstream art house distribution of these films in the states and in the uk yes i think these films began circulating within a gay subcultures uh, you know a, 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 i think i remember seeing ads for things like dark hideout in gay magazines in the late 80s because i think as soon as what have i done to deserve this came out and that was a big success at the new york film festival i think in 85 yeah uh, it was like gay audiences found these films before kind of mainstream audiences did. Uh, but, you know, I, here just to underline that to me the success of the film is, is that it's funny. And it's funny in a very camp way. And it uses kind of a whole set of, of references that are not, address necessarily to a gay audience but that a gay audience would be much more familiar with i mean you know the whole plot when you said at the beginning was this plot about the shop whatever well you know a, a gay audience would in instantly and a female audience readers of the press of the heart yeah <laughs> readers of hello magazine people mm. interested in royalty and celebrity culture and movie stars would have instantly recognized that right you know, that is the yeah, story yeah. of the Shavi Ran, you know, who had to give up his beautiful wife, who he loved so much because she couldn't have children. 
Right? Yeah, yeah. And that was the big sacrifice because it was like one of the great love stories of the age. They were both mad about <laughs> each other, but he had responsibility to have an heir and like blah, right? That story played as much as Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor through that press. Yeah, right? yeah. So, you know, that's an instant reference and also the way that it plays with it. Yeah, so then if everyone understands what that's supposed to mean, then you can play with it. You can sexualize it. You can, you know, so, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the empress now is going to have sex with her son, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. or with her stepson, <laughs> right? So you can break all those taboos if you understand the references of the story. The whole film feels like, you know, fascinating. I mean, it is really comparable to the John Waters films of the period, right? Except I even think, you know, they're, to me, they're even better, really. So all of the jokes, I think, are brilliant. Uh, Helga Linné, who plays the Empress, I mean, just her way of talking makes mm. me laugh, right? Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. know of her. She was like a real uh, Giallo horror cinema queen. Mm. Right? Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, again, you know, if you know that, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. it becomes even funnier, you know. But, I mean, the lines and the way that she says them, oh, the 20th century has been very cruel to me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, like she really makes me laugh just uh, yeah. by what she says. You know, then there's kind of the whole Fabio thing, which I think is, you know, incredibly funny. And then the film goes off in these directions, which, again, I think are very inventive and funny. Antonio Banderas being able to smell people. Yes. Like, you know, and whether, I mean, you know, it's absurd uh, and it's fun and it works, right? I mean, I think what you already see, I mean, there are three things that I think are worth pointing out. You see his talent for incredibly skillful plotting. Yes. You see his talent for getting fantastic performances on on different registers yeah from actors professional and non-professional right and then you begin to see his interest in in composite individual yeah and kind of you know developing his skill in creating intriguing arresting original images but then also using them within the narrative to make a point, to punctuate, to get a laugh, yeah, for different ends, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. So, so those three things stand out for me, yeah. I, th I thought it was great, and I just loved some of the images, and I, I, one thing that just sprung to mind was in, in the, it's just the juxtaposition of um, when Banderas takes the, the Emperor's son back to his flat, and you just get this scene of the, the, the two of them wandering around the flat and very tiny underpants yes. and, then, and on the wall is a poster of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I just um, love that. How, or when you see that picture of the woman with a hijab, mm. yeah? Yeah. And the Shah's son, Imanol Arias, asks, who's that? And Antonio Banderas says, it's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's full of, of, of great jokes. Yeah, um, yeah. The other thing that I want to signal and, you know, that I suppose, you know, certainly my Spanish family doesn't like hearing this kind of thing is that it's 1982. Yes. And you look at the film and you still see how poor Madrid is. Yeah. It really strikes me. Uh, I mean, these are meant to be middle class apartments, the apartments of doctors and so on. And, you know, you, you have like 10 greasy coats on the wall 
you go out on the streets and the streets are all run down and it's kind of blocks and you see the drains and you know the, you see the cement or the lack of paint or you know that kind of just what a second world country can't afford to do which are you know all the i suppose the unessential bits things that might look nice but actually don't keep you warmer yeah and i think yeah, you still yeah. see that through the streets of madrid as pictured in this and they are that's clearly shot on location you know so so that is very striking to me if people are interested in seeing his early films i'd say this would be a really good starting point because it because it's it does feel much more like his later work than Pepe Lucy Bomb, good as that was. Um, and I can see why this had a better reception when it was belatedly released um, in the States. But yeah, they were both, both fascinating films and, and, and very entertaining. I think some people prefer these films to his later ones. There's a whole sector of the population in Spain that would argue that they prefer these films. They're, you know, they're very funny. They're very scathing. They're completely anti-authoritarian. They're very much youth films for youth, yeah? So, and it's got like this, this fabulous kind of energy and inventiveness and this real immersion in popular culture uh, that still delights. Uh, so I would highly recommend it if you're into that kind of thing. All right, well, thank you very much for listening. We are thinking aloud about film and we will return next time with a film about nuns living in a convent, helping runaway girls, and taking heroin. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.